Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm joined today by Deborah Crossland to talk about the quiet part out loud. And within the book, talking about a modern retelling of Greek mythology, Christianity, and young people choosing their ideals of faith. So, um, Deborah, can you please introduce yourself? And my first question for you is what is your definition of feminism? Sure. Hi, my name is Deborah Crossland, and I my pronouns are she, her, and I'm the author of The Quiet Part Out Loud. And my definition of feminism is honestly just true equality for all genders, not just one or two. And what is The Quiet Part Out Loud about? It's always the toughest question. Um, it's about a, a teenage couple who had the perfect senior year romance storybook and of course, everything blows up and they end up breaking up. And then five months later, they're in San Francisco at the same time and they see each other, sparks reignite. But before they can um, confess their love to each other, the, a massive, massive earthquake happens and separates them. So the book is about Mia um, trying to find Alfie um, before, you know, some massive aftershock takes the rest of the city with it. So you have a PhD in mythological studies. What did your studies show in wanting to create a modern retelling and to reject the patriarchal tone of mythology? The patriarchal tone of mythology was one of the biggest obstacles my particular cohort had. We were primarily women. And as we progressed through the program, we were only women. We gave our professors a lot of gray hairs and frustration because we were always asking about, well, what about the women? What about, you know, maybe these stories aren't being told the right way, the right lens. So it's important to me that we re-examine all mythologies, um, not just Greek or Roman, although Greek and Roman is certainly popular, uh, but to examine all of them so we can hear the, the, the stories of the feminine. And I don't necessarily mean just women because there is a masculine and feminine side to literally everybody. And it's those energies that we want to make sure have, um, have equal use and equal time inside someone's psyche. Yes, it's interesting how you talk about the feminine not quite presenting in the way that we're normally seeing that. How did you further see that um, in the studies and you um, putting that into this telling of the story? Well, so the primary function of a masculine energy is action and to move and to do, whereas the primary function of a feminine energy is to sit and be still and to observe and to feel. And so if you get a person that is too much acting, too much um, doing without the feeling or observing or checking in with yourself, you're going to get an overtly masculine persona that um, ultimately isn't doing themselves or anyone any good. And vice versa. You don't want to be too feminine where you're just sitting and not acting. Feeling is good, but we have to have a balance. And so the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice always struck me because I thought, 
you know, what if Eurydice didn't want to come back? Nobody ever gave her the choice. She had zero agency in her own story. And I really wanted to give her that agency. And so that's why I flipped it and made the active character feminine. And why did you see fit that a young adult audience would receive this modern retelling? Oh, that's where the future is. I teach college-level classes in dual enrollment program for, um, for my local community college at high schools. And I see them and I hear them. And, you know, the kids are going to be all right. They, they understand and, and they're so willing to embrace um, this information that is going to carry the world forward into a better place. And so I really would like to be part of that. And so writing for them is how I can be. I am a huge uh, young adult um, novel reader, and I completely understand what you're, where you're coming from. And it's interesting how young adult novels really get into the core of acceptance and inclusivity and tolerance and the beauty of uh, how people live their lives more than I feel what adult books may do. Yeah, I think, you know, we get bogged down with bills and to-do lists, et cetera. And we tend to look for that escapism in adult books, whereas young adults are searching for identity and, you know, how to fit into the world and what their place is going to be. And so young adult books can help with all of that. Something that has been talked about, um, particularly in the media, is how Gen Z is rejecting um, forms of religion. They're either becoming more atheists or finding different forms of spirituality and faith. And we saw that in the book with, or I saw that in the book with Alfie as he's talking about his belief in Christianity. How did you want religion to inform Alfie's life and how have you seen that within the Gen Z and younger generations? So I live in the most diverse city in America and my classroom is full of just about every kind of religion and cultural expression you can, can see, which is fantastic. We live in a sort of acceptance bubble. Obviously, we have pockets of places that aren't so accepting. But, but as far as the, the kids go and the teenagers go, they don't care. They see people as, as people and they joke about their cultural backgrounds and they, you know, they, it becomes a part of their identity in a way that is just who they are. There's no judgment attached to it, which is fantastic. For me, I grew up in a Christian household. Um, and, married into a very conservative um, fundamentalist family. Um, if you've seen Shiny Happy People, uh, it was very similar to that. And, you know, I was just drowning and it. it took me a long time to, to, to walk back out of that. And then going through the mythology program really was, a, there was a lot of what we call shadow work for myself um, and unpacking a lot of my own religious trauma or religious experience. Literally, one of my last classes I took, we had to create a definition of God for ourselves. And um, it was a very eye-opening. It was a long struggle. And I know so many kids are brought up in the tradition or faith that their parents want them to be in. And I see in their journals how much they're struggling against that or, or even wondering if they do believe in it and they just want the choice. And I wanted Alfie to represent sort of that awakening because he just sort of accepted it. My husband now is, um, he's Greek Orthodox and we call them cradle Orthodox, meaning they just take whatever their grandmas taught them and that's just the way it is. And then Mia, 
so fiercely angry at being forced into this belief system that she just railed against it. Watching Alfie be so comfortable in his rituals and his um, faith sort of helps Mia, um, sort of like a salve, and vice versa. I think Alfie watches Mia question her faith, and it allows him a safe place to do so as well. Yes, I, it's one thing that you talked about is you had to make your own definition of God. Do you mind sharing what your definition of God is? Yeah, sure. I feel God's presence the most in the woods um, with trees and and rivers, etc. And I think the best way um, that I could try to define God would be to say that what we usually name as God is is a face. Once we've named it, it's no longer God. Um, that is a veil for the energies that encompass the entire earth. And I don't know, without going too deep into it, it's, it's, it's those energies. It's, it's what supplies and allows the universe to communicate with itself. Yes, and being in creation and being with the physical part of it instead of this idea that has been passed down from generation to generation and having the space to create your own definition, but it's related back to creation and um, the principles of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think at the heart of it is love. And love is an action, not as a, as a noun. Wonderful. Deborah Crossland, thank you for joining us to talk about the quiet part out loud. Greek mythology, religion, and all <laughs> that is related to the story. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi. And with us today is Jane Cowie, author of the book we'll be discussing, One of the Boys. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So right off the bat, what is One of the Boys and where did this inspiration come from? So One of the Boys is a book that asks the question, if we discovered that there was a genetic underpinning to male violence and we could test for it, would you have your newborn son tested? to see if he had this predisposition or not. The book I wrote before this one was about um, a curfew for men. It was about a near-future Britain in which all men are electronically tagged and not allowed out after 7 o'clock, giving women total freedom in public spaces from 7 p.m. onwards. So moving on from that book, my publisher, my editors really wanted something which was kind of the same but different. So they wanted something with a real sort of feminist overtone, which was about men and women, and particularly kind of about this issue of male violence, but totally different. So we brainstormed a lot of ideas, and this one, this idea about um, everybody sort of talks about male violence and accepts it as being a thing. You know, we say boys will be boys. It's just how men are. What can you do? And we focus a lot on what women need to do in order to manage male behavior. But I thought, hang on, if we focus on the men again for a minute, if we're saying boys will be boys, then surely what we're saying is that this is something sort of programmed into men. This is something genetic. And if it's genetic, like many other genetic things, genetic conditions and behaviors, as we're beginning to see more and more now, we should be able to find the genes that cause it. So we should be able to test for them. And if we could do that, and we did do that, what sort of impact would that have on society at large? 
Definitely. And while reading this, it was difficult not to think of gene editing and quote unquote designer babies. What are your thoughts on the ethics of altering DNA? And do you think it could be beneficial if it was ever possible to screen for the violence gene? We are already prenatally testing. You can even test prior to that. Now we can test embryos and we select um, if, if couples have IVF, say if they have a particular genetic condition in their family, which they're trying to avoid. I mean, we're talking here about genetic conditions that cause, you know, terrible diseases, babies that are going to die very, very young. Couples can say, we know this is in the family, we want to avoid it, and they can have IVF, which will help them do that. Um, is it ethically appropriate to do that? I think most people would say that if we're selecting out a disease that's going to be hideous, tragic, and painful and difficult to live with, then yes, sex selecting for sex, no. Most people would say, actually, that's, that's morally wrong because you're saying that one sex is better than the other, and that's clearly not true. In terms of selecting for male violence, I think this is really tricky, and this is a really interesting area because what we're primarily talking about is not protecting that child per se, but protecting the people that will be around them. So we're saying we can detect effectively murderous boys from birth and we can protect the girls and boys that they are going to go on and kill later in life from them should we be allowed to do that it's a good question isn't it um i don't know to be honest i think i would probably lean towards yes but at the same time i can see what a cruel and awful situation that is i think there's also a question of actually sometimes are violent men necessary do we need them within society or do we actually only need them because we have them. So do we need men willing to go out and fight in wars, men willing to be on the front line, those sorts of things, but we only need those men because we've got men that start wars in the first place. And if they weren't starting wars in the first place, we wouldn't need them. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And tricky. yeah, very tricky. And I think it, it gets a little bit more into the weeds because screening for, as it relates to the story, screening for this violence gene it's kind of saying they have a likelihood that something could happen, but it's not a guarantee. And I think that sort of up in the air, maybe sort of potential is where it gets tricky. Yeah, so it, it, it very much is in the book that this is a predisposition. This is not a guarantee. So other things will come into play that you may have a boy with this genetic predisposition who never does anything. So is it appropriate to therefore deal with those boys to treat them as if they are bad when they've never actually done anything bad? But this is preventative, isn't it? By the time they've done something, it's too late. Um, so again, it's about protecting other people from the behavior that may come. And it's about, is the protection of other people worth the restriction? of these boys. It's, it's a really interesting idea. Um, women have the right not to be murdered by their husbands. We have the right not to be raped. We have the right not to be murdered in public places or sexually assaulted or have to deal with any male violence at all. Women have that. It's a basic human right, the right to walk down the street safely. If you sort of take that and say, well, actually, the priority is that particular human right, then restricting boys is, these boys is fine. 
because we're saying that actually the people that they will go on and hurt, the women they will go on and hurt, have the right not to be hurt, and we're going to prioritize that. Therefore, restricting the boys, not a problem. Yeah, and I think a big theme throughout this book was the difference between nature versus nurture. Um, So can you kind of share your thoughts on that and whether you think, you know, people would be naturally born to be violent or is that something that kind of comes about? I think when you talk about these genetic predispositions, we are very keen to say it's in my genes, it's genetic, and we're very keen to attach this label to all sorts of behaviors particularly behaviors where what we really want to say is, it's not my fault, don't punish me for it. That's really what we're saying. There's nothing I can do about it. And you shouldn't be able to be mean to me, to restrict me, to say anything negative or to discriminate against me on the basis of this genetic thing. But we are, we don't really pick and choose about what we decide we're going to say is is genetic, what we're going to say is born this way. And a lot of the things that we talk about as being genetic, we don't actually have evidence for it. There is no gene you can point to and go, it's that one there. But we like to talk about it in that way. So I think really what we're talking about, nature versus nurture, is that it's always a combination of the two. Always. There is never really, or in, there are in some cases, but with a predisposition, it's never one or the other. It's always a bit of both. However, when we talk about male violence, although we have not identified a gene for male violence, when you look statistically at the data that we collect at, at crime records, at prison records, here in the UK, we've got roughly 85,000 men in prison and about 4,500 women. So when you break it down by sex, violent crime, male versus female. It is overwhelmingly a male sport. Um, women don't even come close. And people go, oh, well, there's this female theoretical and there's this murderer. And it's like, yes, we're talking a handful compared to the 90 plus percent that are male. So clearly, being male and being violent, there is some sort of connection between the two. And it would be, have to be a massive environmental difference between how we raise boys and how we raise girls to create that chasm of difference. So I think it's not hard to argue that there is clearly some genetic thing going on with men. But we know that actually most men don't tip over into that. So clearly there is an environmental impact as well. If it was purely one or the other, it would be kind of a, a different value. And we could raise boys out of it. If it was purely environmental, you could mother a boy out of violent behavior. And although there seems to be a suggestion that it runs in families, so children raised in violent homes are more likely to be violent as adults, but you could argue it's a genetic link, there doesn't seem to be an argument that you can always mother boys out of these behaviors, some boys just do it anyway. So I think it's both. Yeah, and I, I think this story did a good job kind of showing how you can have three kind of similar situations where boys are born into environment, um, but with the way that they were raised and with what they had while they were being raised, it kind of influenced the direction in which they went with their life. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, there are 
three boys of a very similar age. Two of the boys are 17 going on 18. One of the boys is a little bit older. Um, two of the boys have been tested. One is negative, one is positive, and one boy is not tested at all. So he doesn't know. So he's growing up with it. I don't know what I am. One boy is growing up going, I'm definitely fine. And another boy is growing up going, well, I'm definitely awful. And they, the environments they grow up in influence them, but also having that background and knowledge of knowing what they are or not knowing also has an impact on how they behave. Yeah. And in this dystopian reality, it seems as though mothers carry the weight of having their sons tested and then taking on the responsibility for their, in the book, it's called M positive or M negative. So there are M positive sons who have this gene, their violent behavior. Why is it that you think that mothers are the individuals in society that like we point to, to kind of blame instead of father? Because we grow them and we birth them and we produce them and they come from us. If you kind of look biologically at it, at mothering and how mothers are treated and these sorts of ideas. We have this idea of sort of, you know, if you give birth to a baby, then that baby is genetically yours. I mean, science aside, you know, obviously there are very few, there are a few niche cases now where that's not the case, but in the vast majority, the baby a woman gives birth to is biologically hers. And women do most child rearing, even in a sort of the most egalitarian society where we're saying, well, things are much improved now and dads parent much more. Mothers still do most of it. Um, and because of that, they really are seen as women's children because it's women and children, isn't it? There are children. We do most of the parenting. We grow them. They belong to us. Um, and that's why women get blamed when things go wrong. Yeah, and I thought it was also interesting because in the story at the time where this testing kind of comes about, you have a generation of older men who were never tested because it was never around. And now all of these younger boys are getting tested. And it kind of looked, it seemed as though, you know, the older men had kind of a mirror holding up to them with these younger boys getting tested. And it was like they wanted nothing to do with it because they didn't want to see how they could have had any sort of responsibility before this point. And I think also in the book, when the adult men refuse to get tested, it's because the adult men have got so much at stake. So an, an adult man who has himself tested and suddenly he comes out with a positive test, if this becomes public knowledge, every, everyone everywhere, his job, his friends, his family, his wife, are going to be looking at him going, but we know something about you now. We know what you are and you're effectively a ticking time bomb and we're just waiting for it to go off. So I think these men know that they have too much to lose if they are themselves tested. And so they don't want to go there. The, the motivation for adult men not to do it is, is huge. Why would you do it? You know, but an innocent newborn boy that can't consent, um, totally different thing and we do routinely test newborn babies now for all sorts of things babies can't consent to being tested for but but it's perfectly normal to test babies that's just what we do a lot of the things obviously we're talking about you know sort of um various diseases and various things but we're totally okay with testing babies uh -huh. yeah and it was it was hard not to from the beginning kind of think about you know if i were a mother in this situation what would i do and I remember reading the little blurb about the book beforehand and thinking, oh, this is such a great idea. I would totally do that. Like, that just kind of makes sense. 
And then, you know, once you start diving deeper into the subject matter and start kind of thinking about the repercussions that this could have, you start kind of thinking, you're like, oh, like, is this the best idea? If you had the chance, do you think you would test one of your sons? This is a really tricky question for me because I am a mother of a son. Um, I've, I've got a teenage boy. When I was pregnant with my children, I didn't have them tested for anything. So I rejected all the prenatal testing. I didn't have any of it. We were really fortunate that our children arrived and they were fine. Would I have my son tested for this? I honestly don't know. This is a really tricky one for me because I come from a family of violent men. So my father was violent. One of my uncles went to prison. He killed his wife. So this is something that's that's clearly, if it's genetic, this is in the family. And I don't know if I would, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I think um, to kind of give a little bit more background about this question, at least in the story with this testing, if boys are M positive, then they're sort of outcasts in society and they go to separate schools and they go to these things called farms where they sort of have to go through manual labor to work. And so it's a very different life and kind of treatment program that they're given versus someone who tests M negative. So it's not just a, oh, like to see if they're positive and negative, and then you kind of just tailor your life toward that. If we had this test and they became normalized and this was something that people got into, once you have this information, you have to do something with it. And I think that a lot of the pressure would come externally. This would come from the family living in the house next door that's got three daughters that say, we don't want our daughters to play with your son because your son is positive and therefore we know he is likely to do something dangerous or violent. We want you to keep him away from our daughters. This is parents going to schools going, you need to prove to me that you can keep my children safe when they're in your care. Um, so you can't, once Pandora's box has been opened, you can't just have this information and not do anything with it. I think there would also be um, a huge industry that would grow up around this because anything involving children and difference is a huge money spinner. So we've got the test. We've now got the result. We've got this cohort of boys. And we've got a problem that people are going to want to fix. And it's such a massive problem, such a massive social problem for the families that they're going to be willing to hand money over for fixes. And this means, um, I mean, in, in the book, the fixes are that there are drug treatments, there are parenting programs, um, there are parenting books, there are special diets, there are YouTube videos, you know, this whole industry starts being built up around, we can fix your M plus son. Um, and I think this is the thing that would absolutely happen because this is a massive money spinner because when it involves babies, people will pay. Um, and then it becomes a thing where actually we can't now can't take the test away because we can't afford to because we've got all these people employed in the management of the test. And so that becomes an industry in its own right. Yeah, and I also thought it was interesting how the law came into play with it because you know, projecting into the future, we saw how by doing this, certain like college campuses were safer, certain crimes went down. And so instead of being M positive is seen as kind of a protected category, it was okay to discriminate based on the status of this test. 
Yeah, so we don't say you mustn't discriminate against boys on the basis of being um, positive. We say, but these are violent boys, therefore we have to discriminate because we have to protect the rest of society from them. So they're pushed out all over the place. Um, and of course, what then happens is that you have this group of boys who are predisposed to violent behavior, who are socially, economically restricted. They can't get into good schools. They can't go into certain professions. People don't want to work with them. They go on dating sites and women say, what's your um, test result? And if they say I'm positive, they say, I'm not going out with you. I'm not marrying you. So they're restricted in that way. And we really then end up with, yeah, this, this, this group of men that nobody wants to have anything to do with. And when you end up with a group of poor, angry, lonely men, you get trouble. That's not healthy for society either. But I think that's inevitably the route it would go down. Yeah, it seems as though the one thing you're trying to protect from, you kind of exaggerate the issue a little bit by isolating the one group. Yeah, which is again then where the nature comes in because you have these boys born within a particular nurture and because of their nature, you create an environment which actually makes the problem worse. I hope that readers will enjoy reading about what would really happen to boys if we if we really did this to them. It's as much a book about the mothers as it is about the boys and, and what it's like being a mother of a boy when you do have to make difficult choices. And also, I think there's something in becoming the mother of a boy, because I've got one of each, I've got a girl and a boy, that when you have a son, you know that his future is at birth set down a different path to her. So you have a daughter and you know you're going to be talking about um, you know, female puberty periods, please don't get pregnant. Um, you know, all, all those sorts of things. It's a particular path that their body is going to take their life down. With a son, you're thinking he's not going to come home and tell me he's pregnant, but he could come home and tell me he's got somebody pregnant. My daughter, I'm not going to get the police knocking on the door going, um, your daughter's been accused of rape, but that could happen if you've got a son. And so you, you have this completely different sort of launch into motherhood where you see certain things that could happen in the future. You hope they won't, but they could that don't happen if you have a daughter. So I think the book is sympathetic to mothers um, and mothers of sons. I think it's, and it's, it's sympathetic to mothers of, of difficult sons also. So I hope that people will take something on from that and something about why mothers and women make parenting choices in the way that they do. And how the love for your child can really push you to make decisions that to people outside appear crazy. You know, what, what on earth would you do that for? That's not the sensible decision, but the overwhelming desire to love and protect your child could, can drive you to make all sorts of choices. Yeah. I will say this was such a bingeable book for me. I love the characters in here because we get kind of a mix of people's perspectives. And I think just the aspect of continuously asking yourself these kind of ethical questions as you go through the book, like, what would you do if you're in this situation? Just, uh, I couldn't put the book down. So I'm excited for even, everyone to read it. Yeah, if, even when you come to the end, even now looking back at it, I'm still like, oh, I still don't know. I still, I don't know. What would you do? Yeah, what it's would tough. You yeah, I, what you, what I would you so do? like from the beginning, I was like, oh, I would definitely get my son tested. And then, like you said, kind of, once you've opened up Pandora's box, there's no going back. 
And so it's like, I feel like if I were to get my son tested, I've kind of put him in one of two, one or one of two boxes that he won't be able to get out of. Yeah. And so it's like that's that question throughout the whole story. I think personally, what I would do is I wouldn't have my son tested, and then if he wanted to get tested when he was older, he could do that. But then we also see in the story how doing that is kind of problematic because then people just assume that oh, you're not getting tested, so you must be positive. So. Yeah, that idea in the book with the boy who isn't tested while people go, well, the reason that you're not tested must be because you've got reason to think that you're going to get a positive result. Um, and that, so he's treated as if he's positive by default, even though actually he doesn't know. Nobody gives him the benefit of the doubt, do they? And he then, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they'll try to interpret a person's behavior with the lens that they want to see them as. Yeah, so every tantrum, every loss of temper uh, is is seen as, ah, look, there's some more evidence stacking up against you that mm-hmm. you must be a boy who's positive, that you're the wrong kind. So I think the test is amazing if you pass, as it yes. were. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and that's that's where it gets really tricky, isn't it? Because you say, well, I, I just, well, I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't have them tested. But if you have the test and you pass, then it opens up the world to you and your life improves immensely. You will then on a path to a great life because everything is available to you. Yeah. So if you refuse to do to be tested, that's what you walk away from. Yeah. And it almost seemed like if you got an M negative test, kind of like that male privilege was just heightened. You got a pass for absolutely everything. Nobody questioned what you did. You were like God's gift to earth, basically. You were on the side of boys. You were in the pool of boys. That's the good pool. So you can get a job. You can go to university. People have to work with you. You can go on dates and you go meet your date's father. And he's like, yep, you're fine. You know, I, I don't need to ask you any different questions. I already know. It really opens up the door boys because they become the boys that can do nothing wrong yeah well thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today and giving us so much to think about no problem it was really good to talk to you and i'm um, really thrilled that you liked the book thank you for tuning in to today's episode of feminist book club the podcast want to be part of the club here's how you can join us obviously subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, 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 o